Hi, this is Stephanie. I'm with MitoAction. I am speaking with Jessica today on her story and her family's uh, path through uh, mitochondrial disease. I don't know a lot about your daughter's uh, history, so if you could just start us with your family story and tell us about you, that would be great. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, my daughter, Dahlia, is 15 years old. And she was diagnosed with Murph syndrome at age four. So the way we got to her diagnosis was uh, kind of interesting. Uh, Dolly was adopted from Guatemala. We have three children. They were all adopted from Guatemala. And from the start, I had a bit of a suspicion that something wasn't quite right. Her speech was a little bit garbled. Uh, she walked in a what I call a drunken stupor, it seemed like. She was very wobbly. Um, and I had some suspicions early on, and I kept being told, well, we don't really know what her prenatal was. We don't really know what her diet was before you got to her. So let's give it time. Let's give it time. Uh, but when she was three years old, I finally convinced a doctor to do some tests. And because it was really at that point a function of her speech and her balance, we uh, went through the hearing route and she was diagnosed with mild to moderate hearing loss. So that was at age three. That was the first kind of diagnosis, the official diagnosis we got for her. And so she wore hearing aids and we thought that might be the end of the saga, but her speech didn't get better and her balance didn't get better. And in fact, they seemed maybe even to be getting a little bit worse. Because she was adopted, we really had no idea what the hearing loss was uh, about, where it came from. Was it, um, a, uh, was it genetic? Did she have an injury early on? We didn't know. And so we were referred to a geneticist and they, uh, we had some blood work done on Dahlia. Now, for anybody in the Mito community, you know that a lot of the time, a blood test does not surface mitochondrial disease, right? Because obviously, as we know, as, as I know now, which I knew nothing about it then, uh, you can have good mitochondria in certain parts of your body and damaged mitochondria in other parts of your body. As it turns out, Dahlia's blood was severely impacted. And so it led to a very clear diagnosis right away. And uh, we went in to the doctor uh, after that, that initial genetic test, which was just simple blood work. And we were told that Dahlia had Murph syndrome, that she had mitochondrial disease, that it was extremely, extremely rare what she had, maybe two in a million. I didn't buy it because <laughs> how can this girl who seems so healthy, so she's a little bit unbalanced and she's got you know, some, hearing, some hearing issues. I, to be honest, I did not even know what mitochondria were. <laughs> I knew it, you know, it sounded vaguely familiar, but I didn't really know what they were. But the, the main thing was that he said, this is a degenerative disease. Okay, yep. And so I then understood that the symptoms she had would get worse over time. And we didn't know where else the disease might surface. My one, so she was, you said three, four when they did the blood test? Mm -hmm. Yes, four years okay. old. Okay. So they were already at that point ready to, or able to just test for MRF right off the bat. 
right off the bat. We didn't need to do any oh. biopsies, nothing okay. else. Heard all kinds of complicated stories about, you know, how, where they're trying to find it. They, they, for better and for worse, they were able to diagnose it very, very quickly. So um, they said to us at the time that the fact that she was wobbly meant she would likely, almost certainly, end up in a wheelchair. And the fact that she was hard of hearing meant she would likely lose all of her hearing, right? So those those areas where the disease was showing up would most certainly get worse. Um, and the balance issues meant that she was having some impact in her brain, and so they expected that they'd see some development in the brain as well. But nobody really knew, as you know. No, there's just not enough data to make any right. kind of, of informed uh, uh, predictions. So um, we carried on, and uh, her symptoms started to get a little bit more intense. You know, we would have to turn up the hearing aids a little bit more. And um, within a couple of years, she was using a walker. And then within a couple more years, she was using a wheelchair when we were, you know, in the mall or somewhere where there would be, we were going long distances. But more or less, she had a normal life. And then we went on a family trip to Florida for February vacation. And of course, you know, we all hear, Kids with Mito, they can turn on a dime. But when it's not your kid, you don't really think right. about what that looks like or what that means. Um, so we went to Florida one February 2014. Dahlia was eight at the time. Uh, she was, it was just before her ninth birthday. And uh, my boys both had colds. And Dahlia caught the cold. And mm. <laughs> so we... Uh, <laughs> called our doctor back at home and we said, well, you know, do you think we need to do anything? Can we ignore? He said, you know, you really ought to get this checked out. Take her to the hospital and see, let's find out what's going on just in case she needs some meds. And we said, okay, yeah, all right. You know, I'll take her over there quickly. I said to my husband, save us a seat by the pool. We thought we'd be right back and that was gonna be the end. You know, maybe we'd get some meds or, you know, something, mm -hmm. some easy prescription. Um, and instead what happened was by the time we made it to the hospital, her oxygen was really dropping significantly and we were transferred to a bigger hospital and within 24 hours she had aspirated and was intubated. Oh, wow. So um, that is where our story, <laughs> the story we're currently living in really began and where things really, really intensified. So um, she was intubated and uh, we were in Florida and she was not getting better. Um, my sister came and picked up the boys and we were, they're stuck in Florida. Um, and it turned into a big battle to try to get our, get back to Boston because as you probably know, we needed a medical jet. That had, it didn't even right. occur to me at first, right? But so that was a whole battle and there was all kinds of, all, all kinds of things associated with that. We ultimately made it back to Mass General and we stayed at Mass General for three months and she was extubated and she intubated, extubated, intubated. She couldn't, um, every time she was extubated, she would just go into respiratory failure. And pretty early on, they started talking about a trach. And um, we, wow. yeah, we did not want to do that. Um, we did agree to a G-tube pretty quickly into that stay um, because mm -hmm. we just, you know, we needed a way to be able to get her food and meds in and a G-tube felt like something we could handle. A trach seemed way too scary. Um, but we were in the hospital for three months and it became really clear that we were not getting out of the hospital without a trach. 
So that's what we did. And we left the hospital three months after, after that trip to Florida. And over the three months, Dahlia lost a lot of functionality. So by the time we left, she could no longer walk at all. She couldn't take anything orally. She she lost her ability to swallow a hundred percent. She, uh, right from the start and remains fully fed through the G-tube. Um, she, uh, was, uh, became a hundred percent vet dependent very quickly. So, oh um, so by, yeah, so within, you know, a very short time, she could not walk or talk, uh, eat and, um, or breathe without the assistance of the ventilator. So that was 2014 and, uh, slowly she lost more and more functionality. The last year has been the most um, intense in a way because she's lost all of her ability to move. So she was able to communicate with us before that by shaking her head, uh, you know, nodding yes or shaking her head no, pointing. She was able to mouth. And so we had a lot of communication through mouthing. Um, mm-hmm. And now she's lost all ability to move, uh, including even blinking her eyes. So we have to tape her eyes shut at night. Um, so that they don't dry out. She wears goggles um, and she's unable to communicate. Wow, I'm so sorry. Quick question, Does, is her hearing, <clears throat> did that go away as well? So the hearing got worse um, and progressively worse. Um, and at this point, we're not really sure because she has no way to let us know if she can hear, right. if she can see her, she, she was declared legally blind um, sometime along the way, you know, but there was a time when she was running, jumping, eating, mm-hmm. you know, potato chips, probably one of the hardest things to chew and swallow, right? Um, right, yeah. She was, you know, a social butterfly and she, um, you know, all that was was taken away from her. Oh my goodness, what an unexpected journey that was. Mm-hmm. So now are you're still in Boston with her team at UMass? At, at, at Mass General. General at, at Mass General, okay. And, and from what I know, and I live in Minneapolis, but we used to fly to Boston to see Dr. Corson at Tufts, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> is that really you guys are in the epicenter of great mitochondrial disease physicians and care and people who are knowledgeable and there's resources for patients. Do you find that that's true or accurate? Well, it's an interesting question because I will tell you that we met many, many, many doctors who had never heard of MRF syndrome. Uh, When we we were in Florida, uh, nobody there in the hospital knew anything about mitochondrial disease. There was not a metabolic specialist. And one of the strangest things was going from not knowing what mitochondria not not even knowing the word mitochondria to becoming the resident expert because of course as moms we know more about our kids condition than, than any doctor and, mm-hmm. and so you know i've learned quite a bit i did not find even in boston there were a lot of doctors and it took us a while we started um we started at children's we we ended up going to mass general um and we have a, tr- a terrific terrific team there but i definitely know a lot of doctors um, who don't who don't know anything and who really look to us as the parents to educate them, which is, you know, unsettling sometimes. 
Definitely. I too have found that to be very unsettling and I am not a nurse. I didn't, I don't have any medical training. I'm a public health person. Um, so I'll contact trace the heck out of anything, but <laughs> don't ask yeah. me to, to go through an anatomy book. So right. I've had, like you, it was a crash course in getting my PhD. That yes. is for sure. Mm -hmm. So what sort of treatment does she have now? And what are your thoughts on research? And is she in, do you guys have um, her listed in any of like the natural history databases? Um, like what, what are your thoughts on that? So when she was first diagnosed, I became obsessed with getting her into a study. I spent yeah. every day, you know, I did not want to miss the announcement of everything. I was constantly Googling. I was writing to doctors. Any, you know, I'd look at the researchers' names at the bottom of studies and I'd write to them. And um, we finally did find a study that I was interested, uh, I thought would be a really good fit for Dahlia. And uh, we, it was through NIH also. And we, mm -hmm. and this was right before that trip to Florida. And uh, we sent uh, her medical file and, you know, you have all the steps at the beginning, right? Does she meet this criteria right. and that criteria? And then ultimately they wanted the biopsy, the skin biopsy, so they could test her cells with the medication. Um, oh, and okay. We, we sent off the, the biopsy and then it takes about six weeks because what they wanted to do was to put um, her cells, you know, they put some of her cells in a, uh, this is how I think of it. This is my very non-medical, right? Some go in a Petri dish without the medicine and some go in a Petri dish with the medicine. And they saw That's that me. her, her, um, her cells responded to the medication. So she um, was admitted to the study and we were just thrilled and figured this was it. And, you know, she would be cured. Um, and what happened was once she became vent dependent, they couldn't accept her into the study anymore. So oh. she was, yeah. I hate those exclusion criteria. Yeah, oh. and so that was, yeah. And, and uh, you know, and now there's, her, her disease has progressed so dramatically. There's, you know, she's not eligible for any, any kind of, any kind of study now. Um, even compassionate, compassionate care entry was not, is not something we've been able to, to get her in um, with that, you know, through that angle. Um, mm -hmm. And in terms of your other question, her treatment has really always just been to try to address the symptoms. As you know, there's, you know, that's, that's all you can do. So um, she's on a lot of anti-seizure meds because obviously, um, mm -hmm. not obviously necessarily to people who might be listening to this, but MRF is myoclonic epilepsy with ragged red fibers. That's what it stands for. And um, so she has myoclonic, mm -hmm. uh, seizures and um, a lot of twitching. So she's on a lot of anti-seizure meds. Uh, she, she's on uh, about 13 meds a, a day um, for, you know, just all, all of the different, all of the different symptoms. Right. Yep. Right. I know that. So um, you're, you're saying that you've, you are looking and researching more for you know, compassionate care type studies. How how are as you as a mom and as your family? What do you do for for you to keep? I know parenting rare is is hard. It's the hardest thing I've ever done, and there aren't a lot. There aren't there are no there are zero books on it. To be honest, I mean there probably are, but none of them have 
tweaked my interest. So well, what hopefully, do you do hopefully to help? we'll get my book published and that will last. Uh, yes, that's what I was leading up year. to. It's like, I, I want to know like what your, your, your book is working towards and, yeah. and like, why, how, do you, how did you well, get through all of this? You know, uh, here's the thing. Where my mindset, where my mindset is now is this people talk about the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, we just got to get through this, whatever the this is. We've just got to get through this and there'll right. be light at the end of the tunnel. You know, maybe she'll get into a study or maybe, you know, whatever, maybe this, maybe that. And at some point we stopped focusing on the light at the end of the tunnel and started to think about how can we make the tunnel better? Because this right. is who we are and we don't know that we're getting out of this tunnel, right? So what can we do to make every day as great as it can be for Dahlia? And, you know, it may sound hokey, but it, it's kind of where we ended up. And believe me, I was not there. I was very much like, I'm going to solve this. If anybody can figure it out, it'll be me. I will get those researchers. We'll develop our own drug. We're going to, you know, our own medicine. We're going to, yep. we will be the ones, you know, who will cure this. Um, yep. But at some point, um, you realize that while you're so busy trying to solve everything, your kid's still there and just wanting to play, wanting to be, and there are siblings and there are mm -hmm. friends, and there's jobs and other things and life goes on. So, so for us, I think um, we, we moved to a place of really focusing on the now. Mm -hmm. No, and it's that's interesting a, because- that's, that's a hard transition to make for us rare parents is to mm -hmm. realize that, you just, like you said, you got to make the tunnel better. And mm -hmm. because for so long, you just live to see the light. And then you realize, I just got to be here. And sometimes that's just, that's a hard acceptance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I give you a lot of credit for that. Thank you. Every now and again, I kind of peek around the corner and go, is there a light? <laughs> right? <laughs> but, you yeah. know, it's like, yeah. um, I had this idea. Um, with with COVID because at the you know I think mm. it's been so hard for everybody right so collectively we're dealing with like fear of illness and uncertainty and and you know it's all so scary and we're all dealing with that collectively right but as right. as rare parents or parents of rare we're dealing with it so individually and there's and it's really mm -hmm. hard for people to relate you know and so. It's almost like when when we entered this period of the, the last many months, um, it's kind of like yeah, we understand how to operate in this in this uncertainty. We un understand how to operate with fear. We mm -hmm. understand that you can you can live you can live with fear. You don't have to be consumed yes. by it. Mm -hmm. uh, and and sure, it's easier said than done. And there are plenty of times where you know I get com you know wrapped wrapped up in and perseverating and all the all the it's not fair kind of kind of thinking but you know i try and try and not let myself stay there too long yeah how do her brothers now are i'm going to make an assumption her brothers are not biological that's correct so that okay. was the other thing that was an interesting piece of the story of course right because we we know that Murph syndrome is almost always maternally inherited mm -hmm. so um so we did we did know that there, you know, she, her birth mother probably had it, and and also like we didn't know because it is so rare, um, right. and you know hard to diagnose. And in Guatemala, unfortunately, she probably didn't have the um, yeah. the the opportunity to have that diagnosed. Um, right. Her brothers are not biologically related to her. 
they're a tight trio. They've been, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty amazing with her. And, and it's interesting. I mean, they have, <laughs> they have a lot of medical expertise now. Even my 13 year old knows more about, <laughs> more about uh, medicine and nursing than, than most adults. Wow. Sounds like you've got a compassionate group of, of helpers there for her. That's great yeah. because I know um, <clears throat> siblings can go one of two ways. You know, they either get really resentful of how much the rare child takes or they just dive in and try to be pseudo the second, third parent of mm -hmm. the situation. Yeah. So it's great that your kids are able to get into that happy middle place of knowing to be care to care for their sibling yeah. but also you know like you said there's still dogs to be walked and life to that has to still move so right. very wow what a story so tell me more about your book and what your hopes are with it because now I'm fascinated <laughs> oh good good um, yeah. you know, <laughs> well I uh, I definitely had a plan and I will tell you, my plan took, uh, went off kilter even before this diagnosis, because my plan was that I would, uh, you know, get married and have kids. And, and you know, I had, I had a vision of what was going to happen. And I, I learned pretty quickly um, that life doesn't go according to plan. Uh, then when we were unable to have children and we adopted, um, that was, again, a little twist in the road. And so uh, it's really a story about how we can um, sustain blows much, you know, much more intense than we ever could have imagined and how we can learn not only to kind of get through, but how mm -hmm. to thrive. Right. And that, I, I listen and follow Dr. Brene Brown a lot, and she <clears throat> talks about resilience almost daily, I think, about yeah. just how we can be so resilient. And once you accept the fact that you can persevere and yeah. that you choose to, and what it takes to do that, I think is, is where it all, where the, where the pedal where the metal meets the road or whatever, the rubber meets the road. Yeah, um, I'm a fan of hers as it well. It is a choice. I, I believe, I, I, yeah, I feel fortunate to be able to, to make that choice and to choose every day what my, um, what my attitude is going to be because I know that there are people who, who aren't able to, you know, to make that choice. Um, but I, I believe really, really strongly in the fact that my daughter has shown us what it means to be resilient because here you have a kid mm -hmm. who had everything taken away from her, everything. And oh, she continued to smile and she continued to find joy. And you know, if she could do it, we can do it. Oh, exactly. Yeah, I'm still stuck on what you said, how she was able to have a, a great typical snack of potato chips. And even that now is not a, not You know, it was interesting. Just the day before yeah. we, yeah, the day before we went to the hospital in Florida, she was swimming and eating chicken nuggets. And of course, by the time we made it back to the hospital in Boston and everybody met her, all the doctors met her, they assumed she was a really sick kid. And they said to me, who's her pulmonologist? And I said, what's a pulmonologist, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I mean, they just assumed that this that this had been. And so what I did actually in the hospital was I hung pictures all around her room so that when any new medical uh, person came in, I could say, okay, that's who she is and point to the pictures. And so they could understand this is what we are trying to get back to. This is who she is. Oh, she is wow. feisty. She is full of life. She's very, very, she was very, very uh, functional. So I, d I wanted the doctors to really see that and to be in it with me and feel like, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to do this and not right yeah. around. Oh, that is a, that is a good tip. You might want to like patent that tip of putting, <laughs> putting that in, because that is true. You have to put that, that factor in there of what you have here now isn't what always is. There's mm -hmm. more to this being right. than what's here. So, wow, that, um, I like that. I like that a lot. Hmm. And you guys were for three months between Florida and Boston. She was impatient? Yeah, she was impatient. My husband and I changed, uh, alternated each night. So one of us would be home with the boys and one of us would stay with her. We, she was not alone for a second in the hospital. Um, yeah. And we, yeah, we kind of moved in. As a lot of families do in the PICU, wow. you know, we, you, you see a lot of families. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I can sleep in any chair in any way. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> no problem. So now do you have a lot of in-home care for her? Um, in theory, yes. So we, so the other big change was when she left the hospital, she was eyes on. So for anybody who might not know, that meant that 24-7, she needed to have somebody whose eyes are on her and that somebody needed to either be myself, my husband, or somebody mm -hmm. trained in her care. So um, that was a pretty big life changer. Okay. That was, I think, the biggest life changer because that meant even overnight, somebody needs to be watching her. So um, we were given oh, a yeah. lot. Uh, we were given a lot of nursing hours, which was terrific. We qualified for a lot of nursing hours, but I remember, you know, at the time I said, "I don't know if this is good news or bad news. The fact that we're qualifying for all these nursing hours must mean she's really, really sick, right? You know, it's almost right. like uh, a couple years earlier we had been um, granted a wish through the Make a Wish Foundation." And when I called mm -hmm. my father to tell him, he said, I don't know if that's good news or bad news, right? Mm, yeah. So anyway, we, um, we were given quite a bit, uh, you know, a lot of nursing hours. The problem is filling them. We can't, we can never fill them. So, um, so that's yeah. what it is. Same here, nursing shortages and yeah. people who are <clears throat> trustworthy. And it's just for me that having that um, person, that extra person in the home all the time felt so intrusive so right. intrusive that I had yeah. that that person had to be like super extraordinary to be in my blanket for it and wow that is hard it is, is and hard. then with COVID of course it's uh, it's even mm -hmm. more complicated because we have to think about where else anybody is any of the nurses are working so for example right. we had a terrific nurse who was with us three overnights a week but her other job was in the prison and so oh. we were no longer comfortable having her come into our house. So we, yeah. <laughs> we really have, and with PCAs as well, we wanted to really limit the number of PCAs coming into the house just because, you know, you want to oh, yeah. try and keep it as, but the flip side is it's super hard by ourselves. And um, she's also 95 pounds and immobile. So lifting her is really hard to do individually. You really do want a second set of hands for that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. just physically demanding. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Wow. Hmm. 
Okay, well, Jessica, we're we're coming up on our on our time here. So I want to thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Um, any last parting words other than buy no, my thanks. book when it gets published? Because that's what <laughs> I'm going to do. <laughs> thank you. And thanks, thanks for letting me share my story, you know, because I, I do like to, um, you know, obviously like you and everybody at Mito Action, we want to spread the word. We want people to understand about mitochondrial disease. And, and thanks for taking the time. And I, I wish your son the very, very best. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm sure we will be in contact again because, like I said, we will be reaching out to families for future uh, podcasts. And I know that there's more to your story that I would like to expand upon if you're willing. So thank Absolutely. you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.